I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iskove. And with us today for West Wing Wednesdays uh, to talk about a proportional response is Alex Berger, writer-producer on Blindspot and The Mentalist, uh, currently writing on Law & Order for The Defense, which will be premiering this fall on NBC, along with apparently a million other Dick Wolf shows. Um, Thank you so much for being here, Alex. 
Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about the West Wing. I, I am very excited to talk with you about the West Wing for, for numerous reasons. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to rewind to 1999. Um, did you watch this show when it premiered? Were you a fan from the jump? Because I do feel like a lot of people have talked about how um, it was a box, one of the early box set shows for some people where like seasons one and two perhaps came out on DVD and then they jumped on in season three or stuff like that. Yeah, it's funny. I knew you were going to ask me that. And you asked me that <laughs> when I did Feel the Dreams with you. And I Correct. answered then what I'll say now, which is that my memory is like Guy Pearce and Memento. I have no idea when I started watching the show. But my guess, I was a college sophomore in 1999. So I think I probably did not watch any television. Um, I got a TiVo in, ni- in 2001. And I remember distinctly watching The West Wing on that TiVo, um, which was my senior year in college. And I'm pretty sure I probably found back episodes somehow through that. If there were reruns back at the time or if they were rerunning somewhere, I definitely I think they were rerunning on Bravo. Yes. But I don't know if that was after it had eclipsed closer to 100 episodes. But be that as it may, so you caught up somehow. We'll uh, we'll retcon it that I was watching it on Bravo. And... uh, and yeah, I mean, I like, I love the show instantly. I came from Washington and I came from politics, um, sort of in, by upbringing and mm-hmm. instantly love that. But also it's what birthed my desire to be a writer. And I would say that this show is the reason I wanted to come to Hollywood and write because I wanted to do something that was like remotely uh, a fraction of this. And I'm, I'm still working on that, but, um, <laughs> but it's definitely, I watched that show and I still have the same sense of inspiration, not just about politics, but about writing uh, every time I watch it. It's, I mean, th- this is this is probably a good segue because I, I want to kind of talk about, um, what's the best way to put this? The 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 legacy of this show. You know what I mean? The, the, how this show affected um, not just writers like yourself, because I do think that um, the sort of uh, soaring, you know, uh, um, sort of speech patterns and the way people talk, like it's a show that loves words. Um, mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin is obviously a, a big fan of his own words, sure. um, but uh, and with good reason. I, I, I do sort of wonder about, and a lot of people, Emily Vanderwerf being um, being one of them, she came on for the pilot and and talked about the um, the 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 good and bad that comes from this sort of idealistic, um, you know, uh, love of civil, uh, you know. Uh, jobs and the government and trying to sort of uh, do good um, and whether or not uh, it warped people's perception of politics, you know, and, and what what can be done, what should be done. Um, we, we've only become more and more as a country more divided since the West Wing was on the air and certainly after it's gone off the air. Um, do you feel like the show... I don't think that's the show's fault, just to be abundantly clear. I, I don't think that the divisions in this country are necessarily the West Wing's fault. But um, I guess I'm curious, you know, your father worked in politics as well, and how he perceived this show, how you perceived the show, how you think it's affected the political discourse. I know these are big questions. But- yeah, you've wound me up, and we'll just go for the hour, and then we'll be done. Um, a couple, a couple. Uh, you'll have to remind me about a couple of those things, but a couple things. Yeah. Number one is... It's important to remember the context that that show was released. The show was released in 99, probably developed, you know, about a year before that. I think it was spec, if I can recall. But faith in government was really starting to tank. I mean, Clinton had just been impeached. It was the end of the Clinton years. The sort of soaring optimism of the early Clinton years was falling. And Sorkin, I think, very much wanted to do uh, a reinvigoration of optimism surrounding politics. 
Um, and then obviously he gets the Bush years and, and Bush v. Gore and, and sort of there's there's a ton of cynicism about politics. And so this was a balm, as we were talking about yes. um, before the show, to people's cynicism and really inspired a lot of optimism. What's interesting is I wrote a political pilot a couple of years ago and I went and interviewed 25 political operatives in D.C. This is two, three years ago, right in the beginning of the Trump years. So probably four years ago. And without fail, every one of the people I interviewed under the age of 45 said that the West Wing was a huge part of why they wanted to get into politics because they wanted to be Josh and CJ and and Sam. And I think there's there's something really profound about that, that, uh, that art can influence life in a way that life also imitates, you know, that also it's trying to capture it. Um, and then, you know, I think what's interesting is you fast forward 10 years, you get Obama, the, the, the sort of soaring optimism is out there in the real world. And so the yeah. political show that you get in response to that, which is in many ways inspired by the West Wing, is Scandal. Scandal is, is the mirror image of, of the West Wing. Scandal is the world out there is idealistic and soaring and optimistic. What's the underbelly of that? What's underneath? What's the sort of sausage being made drama that we can make? Um, and what's interesting to me, and I know you wanted to talk about revivals a little bit later, but like I think yes. the, the world is ripe for a show like West Wing now the sort of optimistic, aspirational, hopeful political show because we've come back full circle to where we were in 98, 99, 2000 and sort of politics kind of feeling like it's 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 kind of devolved, you know? Yeah, I, it's, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's interesting you talked, you know, uh, West Wing uh, up against Scandal. And then I, I would also say that the other show to bring into the equation is House of Cards, sure. which is, you know, again, this the steady kind of uh, jadedness, angriness, sort of division and, and, and backstabbing and all this kind of shit that people now perceive the political sort of arena to be very much a part of, right? And mm-hmm. And it, it it should be said that it does feel, and I mentioned this in the previous two episodes, but it, it you know I can't help but rewatching this and seeing Bartlett be this Catholic to see a little bit of Biden in in Bartlett. You know what I mean? To see this idea of people trying to have belief in politics again, or, or at the very least that politics can be civil, like that it doesn't yeah. need to be um, this this this. Uh, horrific like bloodbath cage match nonsense sure. that it feels like it has become um you know i i think that this show is um it's the best way to put it i think that this show is just very uh naive i guess i mean there's a part of me that feels like and, and in all the stuff i've read about sorkin and how he wrote this show and how he writes in general words aren't all that important to him. It's, it's mellifluous to him. It's, it's, it's the sound of music essentially to him. Right. And, and what he loves is camaraderie. He loves behind the scenes clearly. I mean, that's kind of the cornerstone of his work. Sure. Um, And I think that, um, you know, everyone's heard the story about how he had the meeting with John Wells at lunch and didn't have a pitch. And then Akiva Goldsman sees a poster for West Wing and says, you know, you should do that. Or for American President says you should do that, um, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Sure, fine. I mean, that's a nice story. Who knows how how real all of that is? But it does speak to this idea to me of like, he doesn't really care what the universe is as long as he can have a, a bunch of people just talking real quick and bouncing off of each other. And it's not to say that the man doesn't care about political discourse. I think that he does. I don't mean to suggest that he doesn't. But when like we're in an election year or when he's really, when his feet are put to the fire to make like political stances about stuff, he's a he's very centrist. He's very sort of like, he he just doesn't really believe in in sweeping liberalism in the way that you would assume 
the man that created the show would, I guess is sort of what Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't think there's there's a bunch of stuff in, in there. There's sort of yeah. Sorkin, the political activist figure, which I think is a, a separate conversation to bracket out for a second. Sure, but I do sure. think that he has an aspiration for politics to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wishes that politics were like this. And I always, I always analogize, like, people always complain about Sorkin's dialogue and West Wing in particular, as no one talks like that. And I would say no one uh, flies, but Superman flies. No one, you know, uh, you know, it's it's a superhero show, right? And the superheroes, their their superpower is their words and their intellect and the the way that they um, selflessly put themselves in front of the bus of, you know, partisanship and, and, you know, uh, Washington politics in order to be better for us. And I think it's not a realistic depiction of Washington. In fact, those who live in Washington say that the most realistic political show in the last 30 years is Veep. Uh, truly, yes, I mean, yes. it's like that. Yes, that really yes. does capture the 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 sort of egotism and cynicism that is present in Washington, especially right now. But West Wing isn't trying to be realistic; it's trying to be aspirational. It's trying to say, "This is who we wish we had," mm-hmm. and if we did, we would be in better shape. I, I fully agree with that, and 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 I think that. I mean, they're superheroes. You said it yourself. Like, I don't think that Superman is a, is a, is a crazy analogy. I think that these, you know, you watch every episode of it and you're just like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would give everything for, for an administration that works like this. It should also be said too that, um, rewatching this show, it feels just downright quaint, right? Like the, the scandals that exist within sure. this show that you're just like, just thinking about the pilot and thinking about the the line that Josh says to to Mary March, which is such a like weirdly coded yeah. like intellectual jab that wouldn't right. even register. I mean, yeah, I don't think it would even like be a blip, and yet he's going to be potentially fired for it. But um, there's also so. there's also a quaintness, and, and this is why watching it during the Trump years was such a you know mixed blessing. But like, yeah. it's very nostalgic to have folks in government who are selfless. And who only care about uh, the people, you know, like that's a very dated idea. And hopefully we're back to that place. But like for four years, we really were in a place where everybody was out for themselves and it was a den of thieves. And I think there was a real resurgence in interest in the West Wing during those years because, you know, gosh, we wish we had, you know, Bartlett and Leo in the White House again. I I think it also, I mean, I I can only speak for myself, but I imagine for some people too, that um, I, I, I associated the people in the jobs in the Trump administration with the jobs that they have on the West Wing, right? So I'm like, so wait, fucking Bannon is Leo right now? Like, like this, I mean, just- No, like, I guess it was Rice Priebus. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're just like, it, right. it, it, it melts your brain to think about, you know, Sean Spicer as CJ. And you're just like, yeah. it, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrific. Um, so I want to give just a brief synopsis for, for this sure. particular episode. Uh, still seething over the downing of a fully loaded American jet in the Mideast, a vengeful President Bartlett overrules the Joint Chiefs' plan for a, propos- a proportional military strike and demands a more severe attack that would result in thousands of enemy and civilian casualties. While Leo and other advisors tried to cool off the Commander-in-Chief Press Secretary CJ, scolds a wayward Sam over his potential explosive pirate crusade, uh, private crusade to rescue a well-known call girl from her profession, feeling overlooked during the hubbub surrounding the military options, Josh interviews a shy African-American teen as a potential person related to the president. A proportional response aired on October 6th, 1999. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Mark Buckwald. Uh, just shy of 15 million viewers turned into the, tuned into the episode. Um, I, I want to read just two quotes, uh, one from Sorkin and one from Martin Sheen in, in uh, 
correlation to this episode. Uh, Aaron Sorkin said, when the dust settled from our initial hiring, I said, gee, we are looking awfully white here. We didn't want to replace people, so we added more roles. Believe me, we get it. We're in no way resentful to the NAACP, sorry, NAACP, that is, uh, tapping us on the shoulder and pointing it out. We're dealing with the problem as quickly and as well as we can. I know that uh, Alan Sappenwall, who was our one of our guests in the pilot, was at the TCAs mm. and specifically remembered, um, you know, Aaron Sorkin getting kind of smacked around a little bit for the lack of diversity in the cast. Um, you know, quickly thereafter, John Amos is brought in as Fitz, uh, Fitz Wallace uh, and, and obviously Charlie Young, is, uh, Julie Hill's uh, character is brought on as well. Um, I want to dig into that deeper as we get into the episode, because I think it's obviously a, a big part of this episode. But, um, you know, I, I appreciate that, uh, that he took the note. He took mm-hmm. it to heart. Um, you know, we, we, we certainly can talk about Aaron Sorkin's perception of racism in this country, um, which is idealistic to say the least sure. um but we can talk about that um the other quote i want to read real quick here is from martin sheen who said well i believe in nonviolence as a way of life and i'm planning playing the president of the united states the commander-in-chief of the most powerful military in the world and this guy is anxious to use it in this episode he takes a terrorist act extremely personally because his friend was killed and he has been instructed uh, on the rules of engagement there's no way i could be president you can't have a pacifist in the white house and you can't have one in a white house on television either um you know martin sheen and I mentioned this in the previous episodes, and I'm, I have no doubt I will mention it in all 10, not that it matters. How he didn't win an Emmy is, is baffling to me. Um, his performance is towering and complex, and and uh, I, I watching it this time around, I was just really kind of floored by how immediate it was. Like, yeah. Forget about his entrance in the pilot, which is obviously sculpted to be just this incredible sure. godlike performance. Right. Um, I am the Lord but, your God. Yeah, right. But then second episode, right off the, like the bat, you feel this. He just gets it. Now, I think yeah. the role was written to Martin Sheen, obviously, to his strengths. But still, like it is his voice. I think about his narration at the top of JFK, which I think about all mm-hmm. the time. I think about just how beautiful his voice is, how he just seems like the grandfather or the father that you wish you had. Mm-hmm. Um it, it's it's a truly magnificent performance, and I appreciate that Martin Sheen um, understands himself well enough to not to know what things are a part of him that can be part of Bartlett and what things can't be. And I yeah. think that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I know no, that I mean, he's a religious man, and I know that, yeah. that Catholicism is a big part of why that's in there. But yeah, yeah, I mean, his there's a couple scenes in that episode that are just complete masterclasses. I mean, his his couple scenes in the Situation Room, yeah. you know, especially that moment where he's you know, not the, or the first scene where he's demanding the second plan, but when he comes back and he hears Amos's plan, you can just see on his face yes. the, the realization of his own fallibility and humanity. And then the moment where he doesn't know how to order the strike is one of my favorite moments in the history of that show. Just the, the, the idea that the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, has no idea how to order the military strike. And then obviously everything in that set piece at the end with the, with the, um, delivery to the nation is great. But what's one of the things I love the most about the West Wing and, and Sheen is such a great example of it is, you know, we watch these people on television and they're superhuman. And the president is is most among them. I mean, the president is the closest we have to royalty and, and to God in this country. And but they're just people, right? They're just people who who had a bad night's sleep or who are missing their friends or who would wish that they could sleep in their own bed, um, who are hungry because they haven't eaten lunch yet. And that's drama to me is the, is the tension between their superhuman 
responsibilities and their humanity as people. And this episode is really the first one that really digs into that with Bartlett. Um, his insecurity, his mm-hmm. his um, arrogance, but his fear that he's not as as able to command those chiefs, those joint chiefs. I mean, it's it's truly mind-boggling how well it is written, but also performed. It's one of my absolute favorite things about the show in this episode is such I, a perfect example of it. Yeah, I mean, I really couldn't agree with you more. I, I you know, I, I think about um, the, the tee-up of it, which is, you know, Tolliver dying in the previous episode. Um, you know, Tolliver might as well have been wearing a red shirt for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, and, and, and I think it, I, I think it works um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a solid serviceable character and role. I think they do a very good job in that second episode. Uh, I wish that Tolliver perhaps get, got a, a, maybe another episode or two to really kind of build that up. Not to say that the gut punch at the end of two doesn't work. Um, but even, uh, even Bartlett undercuts it, you know, when, when Leo is saying, I really wish that you wouldn't say him, sir. I wish you would say that the plane went down. And he's like, listen, I only met the guy a couple of times. Don't make it seem like he's my son. But right. at the same time, it has had an effect on the man clearly on Bartlett um and and again that's a testament to uh to Martin Sheen's performance the testiness the the, the emotional roller coaster that Bartlett goes through you mentioned that moment when uh, uh when Fitz uh pitches him the alternate plan which is a, a, obviously a much more um visceral and a body count and all that sort of stuff what's also registering on Martin on Martin Sheen's face is I can't do this. Like, I know Mm -hmm. I can't do this. Yeah. Like this, the, the, the realization that like, well, I can't do this. Like it's, there's, there's got, is there something in between these two things? Like he's trying to massage his morals to find a way to, um, to get vengeance, quite frankly, uh, or revenge over, over, over the, the friend that he lost. Yeah, but what's so interesting is it's not just there's like the ideological piece, which is he wants vengeance and he wants Americans to walk the world. But he also, I think the Bartlett, the character is a little bit of a, afraid of the use of force. And he's also insecure about how he projects himself to those um, military leaders. And so, so much of it is just a human thing of I have to show strength for these 15 men. And it is all men um, who think that I'm not man enough to be in the seat. And that's very much Bill Clinton. Like Bill Clinton was very, uh, you know, I don't know if he was actually insecure about this, but he came into the White House with no military experience. It was a big campaign issue that he had no military experience. And there was a lot of distrust in the military, especially because one of his first issues was getting in the military, which really built a lot of distrust with the, the, the military community. And so when he first had to use force, it's been written about a lot that that was a very tricky thing for him. And, um, you know, again, you're just a person, right? You're just like, yeah. you and I have walked into writer's rooms where we felt like, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of very fancy, important, experienced writers in here. How am I possibly going to hang? Imagine if that was the use of military force, but you were the showrunner for the entire world. And that's what it is, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, no, I, I, you really do feel that. Um, you feel a man grappling with his insecurities throughout this episode. And by the way, throughout the series, I mean, it's mm-hmm. never something that he's comfortable with. Um, and, and I, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, Martin Sheen talking a little bit about how much of a pacifist he is, you know, again, 
you know just as well as anybody that you know a cast is put in front of you as a writer and slowly but surely as a, as a as a writing staff you figure out what every actor's tools are in their tool belt right and like what their backstories are and how you can find ways to sort of infuse that into the character and i wonder if bart if martin sheen's pacifism to some degree or another wrestles inside bart mm-hmm. just in a different way yeah. um these are all just you know again the, the layers of this show i think it's you know, people are, I don't want to say dismissive about this show. It's still one of the best shows ever. It won four Emmys for best drama series, all that sort of stuff. Like, but there is sort of this stinks the wrong word, but there's something on the show now because of how jaded and because of how the political discourse has sort of evolved, where this show feels like a thing that you're patting on the head. And I don't think that that's fair. I think that the show is, is, Tremendous. I really do. I would like all of those people to come on this podcast and I will debate them all. Just have them all on. I will sure, take them to sure. task. Sure. I mean, I had I had two on for the pilot. Let me tell you, it was it was I mean, and I, I respect the hell, obviously, out of uh, Alan and Emily. And, and, and I think all of their criticisms of the show are completely valid. I just don't think that it affects necessarily the way I perceive the show. Right. I mean, it's just like, just you know, we, we've talked about this. On the other podcast, and I think in general we've had this conversation, you have to, with a show like The West Wing, you have to look at a show like this. What is it trying to do? If you don't like what it is trying to do, it's not going to be for you. If you don't want, um, you know, to be manipulated with your emotions and to have sort of like, I, I think I called it on the last podcast, like, well done schmaltz. Like, it's elevated schmaltz, right? If you don't want that, if you want gritty and and sort of real and, um, you know, depressing dark (laughs) you know sure 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 yeah prestige cable drama this isn't the show for you but if you want a show that is about what politics could be or just in general what a family of office workers could be like Mm -hmm. and a friend and a family of friends could be then it cannot possibly be better done than the west i i couldn't agree with you more. I want to um, I want to uh, dive into the uh, the smaller B stories, and then we'll mm-hmm. kind of circle back to the to the Bartlett thing at the end. But I um I, I the, the the essentially the episode opens with you know a classic big walk and talk with uh, with Josh and Donna. Um, you know it, it's it is interesting to read about, and I'm a big fan of this. I'm sure you are too. Of uh, the person who's cast as you know a recurring. Um, mm-hmm. And then, oh, yeah, man, immediately everyone's like, "Whoa, okay, this is yeah. we got to pay attention to what we've got here." Um, and Josh and Donna is, is is exactly like that. And and I would say that you see it in the in the second episode for sure. Uh, you really feel it in this first walk and talk. Mm-hmm. This is when it really starts to like crystallize in sure. a way where jo- Donna's asking for a raise, um, and and Josh is like. Obviously, there's sort of this their banter, their back and forth, what have you. Um, Donna becomes a, 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 a great writing tool, for lack of a better way of putting it, in series, which is she's exposition our dumps, yeah, exposition dumps with, uh, or as as they say on the West Wing Weekly, uh, a uh, um, what is it, a Josh, a Donatella or something yeah. like that, yeah, yeah, Teladonna, Teladonna, So I, I think that there's there's something really great to that. Um, it, it it opens with them doing their their banter back and forth. Josh is trying to hide from CJ. Opens the door. Classic Aaron Sorkin reveal of the person yeah. is there. It reminded me like I'd forgotten how much of a comedy this show was. I mean, like yeah. obviously the stakes are pretty high, but it's written like a comedy. I mean, it's it's a couple jokes a page and like set up punchline a lot of times. I mean, it's not like a it's not written like a multicam. It's written like a single cam, but it is. Yeah. At times, obviously, very melodramatic, but like at times, 
as light as can be. And that's a good, that is a totally. very good example of it. You know, it's also, I mean, the DNA of this show is the American president and mm-hmm. the American president uh, is a different thing. It's a different animal for all intents and purposes, a movie, not a television show, you know, what have you. Um, I, but I do think that he pulled a lot of that sort of Rob Reinery kind of, sure. you know, uh, set up delivery. Um, and also, you know, the line, what is the virtue of a proportional response is in American president. And, you know, it is, it is said that, that think the uh, urban legend is that the, the screenplay for American uh, president was like 600 pages long. And so uh, <laughs> word out, the, um, word out there, are maybe 300 pages, but like people have said that he essentially just took the deleted pages from, the American president and just yeah. turn them into the first couple, but it works, you know, it works. And, and it speaks, it, it also speaks to, um, he's talked a lot about that paralyzing fear after the pilot gets picked mm-hmm. up to series. And he's like, well, we did this once. I don't right. know how I'm going to be doing this 22 times a year. Right. Um, so the fact that he had a little bit of runway sure. with some pages he pulled from the American right. president, I imagine gave him a little bit of breathing room. This show is notorious for having zero breathing room, rewrites yep. on the day, pages on the day, always over. Um, you know, one that's of what makes it so, sorry, I just going to say, no, that's no, no, what no. makes it so remarkable. Like it, it truly is a magic trick when you know how seat of the pants it was. And you, you can hear stories about how he would like, what are we shooting today? We're shooting the first half of act one. Okay. Then I guess I'm going to write the first half of act one. You know, it was truly written like in order like that. I don't probably not this early in the season and this early in the run, but then when you see, especially in some of the later episodes, but this is a good example of it, how he's weaving through and setting things up like this episode, the moment with the glasses where Bartlett says, where are my glasses early in an episode? And it seems like a throwaway beat. And then it becomes the pivotal moment. That, that makes Charlie's character work later in the episode. He does that every week. And it's like, it's you know, it's the kind of thing that you would do on your 10th rewrite of your <laughs> screenplay that you've been working on for three years. Yeah. And it's just done on the fly. I hate to like, you know, uh, you know, be such a, uh, a sort of stand, but I, you, you, you brought on the wrong guy. If you're asking. No, no, no. I mean, I, f- please. Uh, one of, it's one of the many reasons why I brought you on, but, but truthfully, I think that there is something to be said for, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it's a, I've said this before, but like I think about David E. Kelly mm-hmm. writing like, for a hundred episodes of television in 1999 on ruled paper by hand, and I'm just yeah. like I don't understand. Like I yeah. don't know how you your brain works. Um, I mean, Sorkin has talked about you know the writing process on this show, and I'm sure you know this as well. You know, is that the the writers' room is really more of sort of a, a think tank of generating yep. ideas. Essentially, um, there might be drafts. He would take the draft and essentially just rewrite the draft, but needed the pages to work from, for lack of a better yep. way of putting it. Um, and and often people have taken that too. In, in heavy issue episodes, apparently, what he would do is he would just say, "Write me the pro and con on this issue, all the bullet points. Just like have the debate on the page, and then I'll turn that into um, dialogue Painter. and scenes." I, you know. Uh, there probably were episodes that were more heavily drafted by one of the writers on the show and episodes that weren't, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you see that um, you can see it in the writing credits. You can see it in the way that the show sort of evolves. You know what I mean? There's a lot of story buys. There's a lot mm-hmm. of teleplays and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, so in terms of getting back into the CJ is basically um, smacking Sam on the wrist for not coming to her about this Lori situation. Um, so, I hate the Lori storyline. Like, I hate it 
for many, many reasons. I hate it because it, it's just, it's cheap and I don't like it, but I also hate it because it makes Sam look bad. Like it's a mm-hmm. bad way to start the series, which by the way was supposed to be the Sam Seaborn series, to right. start it with him in this weird sort of, I know that Rob Lowe pushed back because he didn't want his character to be in a sex scandal, which Rob Lowe had been in the past. So there was like pushback on that front. So there's this muddiness to everything he does with this that doesn't feel honestly particularly solid. It makes his character seem whiny or I don't know. What what are your thoughts on the Lori Plum? Yeah, I mean, as much as I just said that I find this show to be completely flawless, <laughs> this is this storyline does not work. There's two things in the early season one that don't work. It's to me, it's this and, and the character of Mandy, which I'm sure we'll get to yes. in a minute. Oh, we'll get to um, <laughs> and I don't think that's actually I think there's some structural reasons why the Mandy character doesn't work. But um yeah, the call girl thing, it just has some sort of, you know, white knight savior stuff going on to it where he's going to reform her. I mean, it's very, you know, sort of uh, does not hold up. Well, uh, probably <laughs> didn't hold up well in 1999. It certainly doesn't hold up well now. Um, there's a, there's also just the, like uh, in this particular episode, cause I'm sure you went into depth on this on other episodes with just the plot with, with Lisa Edelstein. But in this particular episode, they put CJ in a weird place of kind of being like the, the angry mom who like is smacking everybody on the wrist. And she, because she's the only female character, and, and that's called out, called to text. I mean, there's a structural problem with that, which is like, I don't know why the White House press secretary gets to be the one to admonish other people. Like, I could see Leo being the one who got really mad at him because it's Leo's job to make sure that the staff is in line. But it's not really CJ's job. And yet everybody kind of feels like they have to kowtow to her. It just felt kind of odd. And it was like putting her in a place where she was, you know, didn't look reflect well on her. It just, it, I, I think that, I can't remember how many more episodes it goes on, but it, it it does feel like it's, it's dispensed with um, eventually, you know, and they don't really come back to stories like this for a while, although there are other, there are other right, issues. Is there a briefcase at her graduation? It's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, so. it's, I mean, part of it too is, um, so I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this, but essentially CJ is like, do you understand how big a problem this is for the administration? Mm-hmm. And Sam's, you know, sort of response to that is, but she wants to be a lawyer and I accident and I didn't pay her. So like, why is this a big deal? And I mean, my, my feelings on that are for real, Sam, like you, I mean, are you, are you like, you seem dumb or you seem naive or you seem smug. Like it's just yeah. all just a mess. And, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, it, it's interesting though, because what I think they're trying, the, 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 the vein they're trying to tap into, which is a theme in this episode and throughout the mm-hmm. series, that I think is admirable as a theme is the contrast between ideals and pragmatism. And that's sort of what the, you know, the sort of essential conflict in the West Wing is, is these people have idealistic visions about what they want politics to be, but they face the reality of what politics is. And I think in this particular instance, what they're trying to do is Sam is saying, I should be able to have a consensual adult relationship with somebody and not have to worry about the optics and the politics of it. Just like in the pilot, Brad Whitford should be able to speak his mind and not have to worry about optics, just like they should be able to hire Charlie and not have to worry about the optics. I mean, truly, that's a big theme in this episode. It just, it was a poor choice of, of outlet for it. I, I would also say too, you know, you mentioned earlier that, that one of the things that Sorkin does really beautifully is finding ways to dovetail mm-hmm. ideas from multiple storylines and make them all kind of work relatively seamlessly. And I don't know how I feel about Sam coming into the interview with Charlie and misinterpreting and twisting this ridiculous thing to make it seem as though 
Josh is asking Charlie about his sexual preferences. And yeah, doesn't work. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a it's, it's a it's yeah. a miss. It's just a it's an all <laughs> that whole like everything with the with the Lisa Edelstein story to me yes. is just kind of a miss. And everything mm-hmm. with Mandy character is just kind of a miss. But it's you know, you and I have been on first year shows. It, you're sure. you're really trying to find it and to have the batting average that this show does in its first couple. Right. I mean, you know. There's not really a clunker episode in that first no. season or two. There's a couple episodes that aren't great, but there's they're all good, and that's pretty rare for 22. And then within those episodes, there's a couple, there's a, a storyline here or there that doesn't work, and this is one of them. But you know that's that's completely expected in a first year show. Oh, for sure. And and, and to show. be clear, it's this show is to your point, um, really hit knows what it is immediately right mm-hmm. we live in a time now where and i i can only assume that this has happened to you because it certainly happened to me a bunch of times where someone says you got to watch this show the first three or five episodes yeah. are great yeah, but I, stick with it yeah i tell them no I pass on <laughs> and you just you whereas and and maybe it is hard to expect a show to hit the ground running but I kind of don't think it is, right? If you know what your show is, you're going to know it. And and I think shows like this and shows like Mad Men, Sopranos, what have you, shows that are just sort of immediately know what they are. Um, I don't know. It's it's just, it's really impressive. But uh, this storyline kind of fizzles. It doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, the, the the CJ and Sam thing, other than that Sam apologizes to CJ and says, I'm sorry. Right. So it's what it is. Um so I want to I want to pivot now to uh, the um, the Dulé Hill uh, introduction, um, which is uh, Josh meets and vets Charlie, uh, Charlie Young, uh, who becomes a series regular. Um, Charlie doesn't understand what job he's being vetted for. He thinks he's uh, applying for a messenger job, and uh, Josh is vetting him to be the body man or, or the pre- uh, the aide to the president. Um, Dooley Hill is so good on this show, but I think one of the things that he has that um, is just a beautifully expressive face mm-hmm. with these just, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul and those eyes that you're just like, you, you can't help but love this guy. Like he almost doesn't need to speak words as he's sitting there just tr- like just trying to absorb, taking it all in. Yeah. It all in. Um, I, you know, and I'm curious to your thoughts on this because I feel like Charlie was always one of my favorite characters, but I'm never totally convinced they knew what to do with him. Like he, they know what to do with him on, on a purely sort of like mechanical level of like what his job is within the construct right. of the show. But once the Zoe thing goes away he kind of i don't want to say he's perfunctory but they never really dig deep and they kind of bring that comes full circle in season four when zoe comes back into play but i say all of this because it feels like a little bit of money was left on the table with a character that i really did love and did wish that sometimes they went a little bit deeper with him but what are your thoughts yeah i mean it's tough because I love Charlie. I think the acting that he does when he walks into the Oval Office is incredible. I think you know, if you just, you know, when, when Dulé Hill did the Western Weekly, he mentioned that that was the first time he stepped foot on that set, which I thought was such a cool, smart choice. Um, the character faces the problem of... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. If this were a cop show and you had six, seven cops and a secretary, yeah. the secretary would not be able to operate at the level with the drama of the cops because he's not a cop. Um, Mrs. Landingham is a similar character, but she drops in when she's needed and then isn't in the show when she's not. I think Dula Hill was just so excellent. Um, and to your point, obviously, they also had a diversity problem on the show and probably were looking for series regulars that, you know, were not white. Um, but he was he made it impossible to, to say no to him. Um, and so they found a way to put him into the regular cast. And he's in the opening credits in this episode. Um, but then I, they quickly realized, like, yeah, you, he's not going to be talking about how to raise the debt ceiling or what to do about Israel. So we got to find things for him to do. And so they found for him to date um, so we, I think if I remember serves correctly, he's a big part of the uh, assassination attempt at the end of the season. So I think they were targeting him, if I remember correctly. Yep, they were. Um, and so, you know, they, they found ways. A myriad of ways that didn't involve a giant assassination attempt. Sure, sure. Where's the <laughs> drama I, in that, Phil? But I, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a fair point. It's a totally fair point. And, it, you know, I, I probably, if I were to rewatch it, I'd notice it more than, than I did the first time. But yeah, I think you I think you explained it really well just now in the sense of, um, you know, he's he's a uh, he's a he's a recurring character that they turned into a series regular. And to some degree or another, he's in a bit of a purgatory between mm-hmm. these two worlds. And when I look at it through that lens, uh, it does give me a little bit more sort of understanding of where they were and how many mouths you have to feed in terms of a very big cast. So I, I understand all of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I it is what it is. I also remember on the West Wing Weekly, Dooley Hill always somehow finding a way to get out of, uh, to be in a shot in a certain way mm-hmm. so he could be out of there earlier than yeah. the rest yeah. of the cast. Yeah. So it's, it's oh, I, I mean, he sounds lovely. I'm sure he had a blast um, and I'm sure he has no reservations about the show at all. But um, to, so... Uh, Josh interviews him. We mentioned the whole um, uh, Sam thing, but uh, Charlie tells Josh that his mom was a police officer who was shot and killed in the line of duty five months previous. Um, Josh goes to Leo and asks him about the optics of hiring Charlie as the president's aide, a.k.a. I don't know how I feel about, you know, a black man holding the president's suit or whatever the case might be. Um, So... Leo talks with uh, with Fitz Wallace, and there's a really mm-hmm. great exchange here where he says, uh, do you have a problem with a young black man waiting on the president? And Fitz says, I'm an old I'm black an old man, black and I wait on the president. Yeah. <laughs> and Leo says, the kid's got to carry his bag and such. And Fitz says, uh, you're going to pay him a decent wage? You're going to treat him with respect in the workplace? Leo says, yeah. He says, then what the hell do I care? I've got honest to God battles to win, Leo. I don't have, mu- I don't have that much time for the cosmetic ones. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, 
which is obviously a, a great exchange and really boils it all down to its essence, right? Yep. Um, and and Fitz is one of my favorite characters in the show, and he obviously recurs. Um, his I, I also love that Fitz's first line is, you know what I was thinking? This is a different coffee than we usually yeah. drink. Which is just just great. Um, Fitz is one of the funnier characters. Like he Mm -hmm. somehow straddles that line of being able to deliver a line exactly the same way, funny and serious. And it's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, So the Charlie Charlie storyline essentially ends with Josh picking a hell of a time to introduce Charlie to the president, which is right before he addresses the nation yeah. about this. He maybe when 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 he has the moment where uh, he figures out where the president's glasses are, I kind of wondered why Josh didn't just spare him the the, the indignity of interrupting the, yeah. the leader of the free world right before he's about to speak to the nation about his first use of military force to tell him where his glasses are. Maybe maybe uh, Josh could have said that at that time and then give credit later. But you know. It's it's he's what it is. He's amplifying. Uh, he's amplifying the young voice. It it so it 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 ends with in classic West Wing form a beautiful moment. Uh, Bartlett and Leo will talk about their scene in a bit, but Bartlett comes out of that scene with Leo, goes up to Charlie and says, "You know, um, I heard your story. I heard about your mom. We haven't had much luck trying to get rid of that ammunition or that type of gun. But when the Senate comes back in, or when Congress comes back in, I want to take a big whack at it. Do you want to help me?" And it's just like, I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it. Like the, the, the look on Charlie's face, the just the possibilities of what government can do when they want to do good. Yeah. Um, and Charlie turns to Josh and says, I've never felt like this before. And Josh says, it doesn't, it doesn't go, go away. It's just like, I mean, you can't yeah. do better than that. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. So, uh, you know, you mentioned my dad worked in government. My dad, my dad yes. worked in, in public service for 40 years. The you know, pinnacle of which was he worked in the Clinton administration for eight years. And he had a, a memo that he would give his staff, uh, I think about once a year, called Burger's Rules. And it was 10, Burger's 10 Rules for White House Work. He distributed it, became kind of famous, and went out, went around in the Washington Post. Um, and some of them were like, you know, always wear your pager and always have two cell phones and, you know, like you, sort of little funnier things. But the first one was never forget where you work, the White House, and for whom, the president. And if you lose your sense of awe about that, it's time to think about moving on. And he said, he always talked about how every time he walked in and out of the White House, he looked at the building and he was awestruck by the power of the office that they served. And a lot of people can't, he lasted eight years. A lot of people eventually get jaded by that and leave. Um, But some people never lose it. And in fact, probably most people never lose it. And most some people just leave because of burnout. But um, but yeah, I, I, I thought about that. Burger's Rules when I watched this episode again and, and it sort of resonated with me in that way. For sure. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound too sentimental here, but I, I every time I'm on a set, I think the same thing where I'm just like, I feel mm-hmm. so lucky to get to do this. Like someone pays me to write and do play fucking dress up and point cameras right. at people. Like right. this is unbelievable. Um, and, and, and it, it really does, this show does a beautiful job of, giving you that sense of awe every week. Um, It sets itself up to do that, right? Like every week it wants you to get goosebumps. It wants you Mm -hmm. to think that anything is possible. Um, 
So I, one other thing I want to mention on the CJ thing uh, is that we were introduced to Danny Kincannon in this episode. Timothy Busfield's character shows up for the first time. Um, who's just, I mean, th- talk about chemistry. The two of them are just like so great together. And, and That's all I do on your podcast is I come on to talk about Timothy Busfield's Bus- uh, lesser <laughs> yeah, known right. roles, Field of Dreams right. and West Wing. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Timothy Busfield, uh, who, who is fantastic. Um, you know, Danny Kincannon becomes sort of a, um, what's the best way to describe it? He basically becomes, uh, the, the skeleton key for press, right? He's the character who kind of personifies the, the press, give or take. There are other recurring characters, but Danny's sort of the biggest, uh, character and, and obviously ends up being a love interest for CJ and, at the end of the series, she ends up with uh, with Danny Kincannon. Um, it, it's it's a it's a wonderful relationship that we get to see the first seeds of here. Um, he uh, he's actually not credited in this episode, uh, weirdly, um, which makes me wonder whether or not he was going to be recurring. Whether or not this was, I mean, it seems like he their their conversation seems to have like an ellipse on it in terms of right where it could go, but it also could have been rounded off if they decided not to bring him back. I'm really not sure. Interesting. Um, I know he wasn't credited. Yeah, and Kim Webster makes her first appearance in this episode. Her character, Ginger, is, mm-hmm. becomes a recurring character uh, as one of Toby's assistants. Um, so I, I want to just dive in. We'll just dive right into the um, the Bartlett storyline, which is ultimately, as we mentioned earlier, he's frustrated by the lack of response, the idea of a proportional response. What is the virtue of a proportional response? Um, you know, we, we get that whole sort of opening scene in the situation room where he's like legit fucking pissed. <laughs> and he's just like, I want you to give me some sort of response that doesn't feel like we're docking someone's allowance. Yeah. Um, okay. Which is fair. <laughs> like, it does right. feel like, why, why do we bother doing this? Um, it's, there's a great line that he has, um, uh, blah, blah, blah. uh, well, first of all, he, he basically represents the, the joint chief of staff. And then he says something along the lines of, um, oh, Fitz Wallace says, uh, after sort of giving this disproportionate response later, he says, you'd have doled out $5,000 worth of punishment for a 50 buck crime. Um, and then Bartlett walks, as he's walking out, says a 50 buck crime. I honestly don't know what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like that this show also balances the idea of the hopelessness right. of politics with the hopefulness of politics, which I think comes back to what you were saying of like every episode having that both sides of an argument so that right. it feels somewhat balanced. But I'm curious with your father's work uh, in the White House and, and sort of the um, what your feelings or his feelings were about effectiveness of, of an administration and, and how much change can you really do? I mean, I don't think people, you know, there's a sort of like uh, trope that people get into politics for power. I think people eventually are in politics more power at the end of their careers, but most people get into politics because they have aspirations to to serve the public and change the world. And, um, you know, my, my dad, uh, passed away a couple years ago before he died. We did a, um, like an oral history with him where we just asked him about his whole life starting from when he was a kid. And there was a real through line, you know, from the, from uh, being a child, uh, to this idea of serving and, and, you know, public service. Um, and he's not, unique in that respect, all of the folks who work in government could make a lot more money elsewhere. Um, but they're doing it because for the most part, they want to serve. And that's true of people that I strongly disagree with. I think it's probably changed a little bit in the last five years or so, 
where there's some people who are in it for some pretty warped reasons. But I think they probably got into it in the very beginning because they wanted to help. Um, and I think, you know, that's what the West Wing captures. I know my, my dad was a huge fan of the show. Um, he had a history with Sorkin. He, he met Sorkin when he came to the White House. I'll tell one quick story, which is a little Please. bit of a sidetrack. But um, this episode is, is a big part of it. My dad watched this episode and a couple other episodes. And my dad was Bill Clinton's national security advisor, which is the sort of chief foreign policy advisor to the president, the person who, who synthesizes advice from the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the Chair of the Joint Chiefs and economic advisors. And it's sort of supposed to be, a, in, in a lot of administration, it's the last voice that talks to the president before they would bomb uh, Syria. Sure. And so when Sorkin came to visit the White House, because the, 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 the show had a pretty good relationship with the Clinton White House and they would come visit all the time. And he came to visit my dad. Sorkin, Sorkin has told the story and my dad has told the story. You can see it. It's on record. Sorkin is walking around the White House and is told Sandy Berger wants to see you. And that's not a good thing if you're Aaron Sorkin because he's being called into the principal's office. And my dad pulled him into his office and he said, no president is bombing Syria without talking to the national security advisor first. You need to have a national security advisor character on your show. Um, and so if you, after, I think it's season two or season three, he introduced Anna Devere Smith, who's basically a spitting image of my dad. Um, that's uh, sarcasm in case you that's can't tell. That's obviously as the national security advisor, who was delightful, and I later had a chance to meet her, and she was could not have been more generous with her uh, uh, time and sort of praise of my dad. It was very sweet. Um, but, you know, it was just a funny sort of uh, life imitating That's artist being life yeah. moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> there. It is interesting how Sorkin is known for wanting all the facts in front of him and then choosing what facts he wants to use and which ones he doesn't, or which ones at least fit his purposes. I don't think he's ever trying to lie to people, but I think he's definitely trying to sort of make sure that he's within the lane of believability, but also is getting what he needs to get out of it, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, Uh, no, he was, I mean, you know, you can't have a realistic portrayal of what it's like to make policy in the White House, you know, like Sam... Sure, and sure. and to- and Toby are not actually going to be writing every single speech that the president gives. There's a huge speech writing staff, but that's not very interesting to put on television. That's very expensive. But he, to his credit, would add people to the ensemble as the show went on. And by the end of four seasons of, of writing that show, there was a really rich ensemble of people who lived and came in and out of that White House from the person who curated the gifts and the art, forget the Lord Marbury or whatever his name was, to, uh, you know, lower level staffers to, to as you mentioned, reporters and, and you know, those kinds of characters. It, it definitely feels like a show that, I mean, almost immediately, quite frankly, like there's a lot of bodies. There's a lot of movement. There mm-hmm. is there is a definite sense of like stuff's happening all the time. Um, I, you know, John Wells obviously produced ER. So yes, the, now, yeah, that, I always draw, yeah. Yeah, that connection, producerally anyway, of just feeling like there's always movement and feeling like there's always a bustling kind of component to the show. Um, I, I think also just... Uh, little flourishes, little things that he chooses to give Bartlett. I mean, I don't know if a president would smoke a cigarette in the in the situation room. My guess is he wouldn't, but I don't fucking care because I it think was great. it's cool and yeah. it's a great moment. Um, and Bartlett with, you know, Bartlett when he smokes the, the cigarette in, in the in the church in, in two cathedrals mm-hmm. and says you get hoins and stamps out the cigarette. It's just these theatrical kind of components, these flourishes um, are one of the things that, that, that I love about the show. And it comes back to what you were saying in, in terms of like, it's still a TV show. It's supposed to be entertaining, right? Like it still has right. to do what it needs to do. Um, so Bartlett uh, at this point um, essentially has given the go ahead for the um, proportional response. At this point, he realizes that he can't do this 
blowing up an airport or blowing up a hospital or whatever, whatever Chris Wallace was saying would be the disproportional response. Um, and you sort of see him struggling with this. Um, and you really have the first big Leo Bartlett scene in this episode. Um, it's the one where basically before he's about to go on the air, he's clearly testy, he's pissed off. Leo takes him into, into his office and says, you know, you've blown up at everybody. I'm, I fear that the American people are mm-hmm. next. Um, and you get to really feel the beginning of what that relationship will be like in series, this brotherly loving relationship that they have um, and that Leo will be the person to push back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I always, I always wonder, so, so Sorkin has famously said, I, I, did his, I, you know, I listened to his master class in which he talked about this. That's how much of a Sorkin fan I am. <laughs> and um, he, he talks a lot about how he doesn't believe that you create character backstories before you do a show that the characters have, as much backstory as exists in the text on the page. And then you build backstory to them as you go. And I've always wondered if he had in mind that they've been friends for years and that, you know, at one point Leo was, you know, just the ups and downs of that friendship, how much of that he knew beforehand, because it's sort of set as a throwaway in this, in this moment. You know, I think about all the work you did to put me into this, to get me to run all the work you did to get me to win. I could, I could really, you know, punch you in the face or whatever it is. And, (laughs) And then that that's just all it is in this moment. And then you get so much depth later in the series mm-hmm. to what that relationship was before. Yeah. Um, and I just, I always wonder how much of that he knew beforehand and how much of it was just like, I need to, I need a, I need a, something for him to say in this end of the scene. That's going to feel poetic. And I'm going to have him say this. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm going to, I think it's the latter. I mean, I, yeah. and I, I say that with, with nothing but love for this show and, 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 uh, it makes me admire the show more if that's the case though, because no, to, like, for improvise sure. that level of backstory to a character is uh, in a lot of ways more impressive than, it's, you know, it's, and as you know, you speak to the idea of continuity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this, this show, I mean, it's clear that, that, there's a million researchers and a million assistants and a whole bunch of people to be like, you can't say this because you said this back here. But just look at the fact that in Charlie's interview, he refers to Debbie, who ultimately will be Lily Tomlin uh, in season three. And and that whole thing coming full circle is is a thing of beauty. Now, again, not planned, obviously. Yeah, for sure, yeah. But it all kind of works out in the wash. And so I don't really care how you get there if you get there, right? right I mean, as right. I sort of, I think, I imagine you feel the same way. You know, the, the, the Bartlett-Leo relationship, to your point, the show was never going to be about Bartlett. <laughs> like, right. that, that blows my mind to think that ultimately he was just going to be a cherry on the top of it at the end of every episode. Um, so when you think about it as the ensemble that it became, right, and the 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 breadth of characters and all that sort of stuff. It, it's hard to even process what the Sam Seaborn show is. Like, I don't even know what yeah. it is. Like it's, it's right. crazy to me. Right. Um, so yeah. So we, we really have sort of that first scene where Leo pushes back and says to him, you know, um, if you think you're going to take over the world, you've got the biggest, I'll be the first person to fight you on it and I'll take you fucking down. Right. It's just, and, and it, it really kind of, he's always the grounding force for for Bartlett, it, it's 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 really a beautiful thing, and yeah. it's why you know you think about John Spencer's unfortunate passing at the end of the series, and how um, you just couldn't keep making the show without. John yeah, Spencer, you know. yeah, it's you know the the way that he speaks truth to power in this show is really um, is really special, and I, I love the moment in this show where he 
he talks back to the president in one of the very early scenes about, you know, you got to be careful how you're talking about uh, the bombing. You know, don't say him. He pushes back. He pushes back. And then when he goes to the senior staff meeting, they say, how's the president? And he says he's fine because he protects. That's what all of the characters on the show do is that they will speak the truth with their friends. And then when they're with people that they need to be, you know, sort of supervising, they they protect them from that. And there's there's it's a beautiful friendship. And I think it's it's sort of universal, but it's also very specific to the president. I mean, presidents have talked a lot about how you need the one person who kind of knew you as a person before, who knew you as a human being before, and who could treat you as a human being and not a president while you're in the White House. Obama had Valerie Jarrett. Um, Bill Clinton had um, his best friend from childhood. Mac McClarty was his first White House chief of staff. Um, you know, who knows who Trump had, but um, probably nobody. But um, which, you know, is why we I got like that you think got. he has a best friend. Right. Sure. That's, that's that's funny in and of itself. Ivanka. Um, but but, uh, you, you know, I, I remember somebody saying about Obama and Valerie Jarrett, who was his friend from Chicago, came to the White House. You need somebody who you can go upstairs on the Truman balcony, have a drink with, who can call you Barack and just like, you know, for a second, you're not the president. And I'm sure she'd never call him Barack, but he probably <laughs> wanted her to. But, um, you know, you you need to remember that you're a person at the end of the day. And I think that's what Leo and Barlett does on the show so well. Totally. For sure. For sure. I I think also, you know, to, to, to pivot to the military stuff a little bit, Leo has a Mm -hmm. military background, um, you know, his history in the military, um, really sort of, um, humanizes the experience for Bartlett a little bit and, and puts, you know, a, a real sort of uh, human face on the military in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which I think is part of it too. Um, I, I think it's, I, I think it's a fascinating relationship. You know, Bartlett for America is one of my favorite episodes in season three um, where you really sort of get the backstory um, in all of that. You know, as I, as I mentioned to you before we got on mic um, in the shadow of two gunmen is, is probably my favorite episode. Cause I, as I mentioned, a, a sucker for how the team came together and, and where everybody came from and seeing how Leo, you know, the, the way that he picked the team and why he picked the team and why he fires everybody except Toby, uh, you know, and, and, and just sort of understands what Bartlett needs. You know, I think that, you know, the, the Toby Bartlett relationship is a fascinating one in and yeah. itself too, right? Like that's a weird father son dynamic from two yeah. very different backgrounds. Um, and, and, you know, 17 People, one of the better episodes, um, is all about that. It's all about Toby calling him on his bullshit and saying, like, yep. you know, but it's also Toby lying to himself about the fact that he's hurt that he didn't know what was going on. Like, yep. it's all just this, it's just good stuff. Yeah, it's the, um, it's the only other character who really does take the presidential task every once in a while, but it takes them a while to get there. And I think it's earned it's, because they, they waited a while on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's another really good point about the show which is knowing when it's earned something and knowing mm-hmm. what's required and how much you need before the payoff is, is going to work. Like it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, ultimately the, the, the episode ends with Bartley giving this televised speech uh, about, uh, about this attack that, that he's this proportional response that he's about to, 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 to give. Um, the only other uh, person that I kind of wanted to tap into a little bit here is Josh, who doesn't have a ton in this episode. But they call um, it out in a, in, a, in a really fantastic way. They do. I have nothing to do like a writer on a movie set. Yeah. Um, and then Spoken Donna's saying, experience. have you ever been on a movie set? And he's like, no, yeah. but I hear people talk. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And Whitford's, um, Whitford's comic, I mean, of, of a cast that is very funny, Whitford is truly like amazing comic timing. 
Yeah. I mean, he also, by the way, you know, um, on the Donna thing, just for a quick second, uh, Janelle Maloney said something really beautiful, which is that on the pilot, um, there's a moment when John Spencer, Leo goes up to her and says, can you get Josh for me? And she just yells, Josh. And he Mm -hmm. says, I could have done that. Um, he, after the, after one of the takes, he turned to her and said, you're going to be here until the curtain comes down. And just that he, he was the first person to say that to her, that. the first person for her to know that he recognized her and what she was bringing to the table. And, and same with uh, Bradley Whitford. He just knew he had a great tennis partner, right? Like he just right. knew that he would only be better and she would only, be, you know what I mean? Like he just knew yeah. that he had a great partner. Um, which brings us to Mandy. Yeah, <laughs> Which sure. I think is a perfect segue to Mandy and how sure. she was not a good tennis partner. Yeah. Why do you think Mandy didn't work? A couple of reasons. I think, you know, some of it is casting, you know, just poor fit, not bad actress, but just poor fit. Um, I think a lot of it is that it's a bottled concept that's it's all in the White House, except for her. She's not in the White House. Yeah. And so you're just, you're annoyed when they're cutting away from the thing that you love to this character that, I understand why they wanted to introduce an outsider, but it was just, it was a poor choice. Um, And then part of it, and this doesn't really happen until later, but she comes in and she's the person who tells them, don't be idealistic. Don't, (laughs) don't have hopes and and, and dreams and be aspirational, be base and pragmatic. And what's so interesting is I was thinking about it as I was watching the episode again, Marley Matlin has the same role, right? When she comes onto the show, she's the pollster who's telling them, but she, first of all, the actress is just truly incredible. And it's a different thing that you don't see on television a lot. And Josh and her have much better chemistry. But um, she also, they, they found a better way to do a pollster. A pollster who sort of believed in idealism a, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, again, first season shows you miss on a couple things. This was a miss for me. What, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I would also say that, that Josh and Mandy feel like a brother and sister. Um, mm-hmm. they, they have this, the, their energy does not, does not feel romantic to me. Um, it, it's, I mean, I, I don't mind the trope of the ex that you're forced to work with and, and the sparks that fly and you getting back together with that person or character. Like, that doesn't bother me necessarily. Um, but it feels like they just, they were set up to fail in a weird way because I didn't feel like the casting was totally right. Um, there was this, there's also this um, uh, almost like a preconceived, it's like Sorkin's basically being like, you love these two. You love these two. Right. And you're like, I, I don't love these Do two. I? Like, I yeah. like, stop telling me that I lo- like. It's it's a little too arrogant in its mm-hmm. in its sort of like, you know, you love them thing, which is I think why the Donna thing caught them so by surprise, right? Like, and yeah. it's why I think America liked it so much, which is that they weren't expecting that dynamic to manifest. Right. And of course, the X that you're supposed to love. Um, but I, I think yeah, it's no, exactly he, he does, it, throughout the series. The best relationships are the ones that were flirtatious from scene one, but came from a place of organic workplace, you know, mm-hmm. CJ and Danny, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, Dula Hill and um, Elizabeth Moss, Elizabeth Moss, um, you know, they earned those. And I feel like what you're suggesting is right, which is that this was an attempt to say like, here, here's your story yeah. without earning it first. I, yeah. And, and, and just to, to double down on what you just said too, I just think that, that fundamentally in the DNA of the character, there was this sort of uh, antagonistic antithesis to everything that the Bartlett administration believed in. So you had this character that, first of all, felt like she was on a different show that would just kind of like helicopter in and be like, tisk tisk, stop being right. so good. And then like, fuck off again. It's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Um, 
I, I feel bad because I, I don't think it's Moira Kelly's fault. I think that she's a good actor. Yeah, um, I agree. Even if they are writing her so spunky at times that you're just like, can we just like, yeah, calm down. It doesn't stop. <laughs> but, um, and I, I feel bad because I do think that Mandy does get storylines that work. There's the whole hostage situation that literally blows up in her face, which is a really powerful and a cool thing that they do with the character that I think Moira Kelly delivers perfectly. It's not that it's all a wash, it's just to your point never really totally clicks. Um, so I, I want to ask you what your uh, favorite episode of The West Wing is. Uh, you mentioned it. It's, it's two cathedrals. Um, it sure. is, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of people love that episode because I think the season finales on the show are really fantastic. And the ending of that episode um, with that needle drop is is one of the best moments of the series. And um, obviously the moment before it with the, uh, Harlot in the cathedral speaking to in Latin and before that episode with Landingham and the, and the, in the office. But it's also just like the whole episode is such a propulsive story because you have like enormous stakes about the, the MS is about to leak. Um, he's deciding whether to seek re-election and he's doing both of those things while grieving this woman. And then as you say, like Sorkin very rarely does flashbacks, but you get to see a glimpse into, you know, um, young young Bartlett and young Mrs. Lanningham. And what's incredible about it is... And Lawrence O'Donnell, that's his dad. And Lawrence O'Donnell is his dad. <laughs> and what's what's incredible, and there's a whole backstory to him getting cast in that, which is really funny, which you, I think you told on the West Wing Weekly. But um, flashbacks where you are having different actors play your leads almost never work because the audience knows who those people are and you're saying, that's not Bartlett, that's some other person. Yeah. Um I think partially because they were so much younger, it was a little easier to buy, you know, sort of the River Phoenix in, in Last Crusade phenomenon, although River Phoenix legitimately looked a lot like Indiana <laughs> Jones. Yeah. Um, but but it just works because the chemistry of those two actors that they cast works, the writing of those two actors works. Um, and then, yeah, that scene in the cathedral is truly phenomenal. It has one of my most uh, 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 persnickety uh, oh. continuity errors in all of West Wing history, which is, it's such a tiny DC nerd thing. But if you were to drive, what, what's happening is they're driving from the White House to uh, the State Department, I believe, is where they're delivering that speech at the end of the episode. And they drive past the National Cathedral, which is like three and a half miles out of the way. Um, and I'm just like, I get it. It's, you know, it's a cigarette in the Situation Room, but it just annoys me as a DC person who grew up near the National totally. Cathedral. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I also think that, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the very, very end of that episode, which mm-hmm. gives me chills every time. The hands in the pockets. Yeah. The hands in the pockets. And what, what I love about it is, and Sorkin's talked about this, that he just, he wanted to say that he was going to run again without saying that he was going to run again. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used sort of the flashback of Mrs. Landingham knowing that he was going to do the thing because he put his hands in his pockets. Um, right. I love that that a, that a man and a writer with 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 a a love and a passion for words chose a wordless way to convey something. Mm-hmm. You know that he knows when to shut up and he knows when the power of an image can work. Um, yeah. Which which I think is is really interesting because I, I think yeah. that. I imagine that there isn't a thing that Aaron Sorkin doesn't think he can talk his way out of. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it's also for a show that was like, I, I think the score, we haven't talked about the score. I'm sure you'll talk I'm about sure, it at some point sure, during sure. these episodes. The score is fantastic. It's it's interestingly coming into its own in the first couple mm-hmm. episodes and finding itself. But when he picks a needle drop, it almost always is fantastic. And the, and the Dire Trade song in this scene is just like, yeah. or the Hallelujah one later on. I just like, you know, 
They really just, I, I think he has said that sometimes he has the needle drop in his head before he actually has the scene sometimes. I don't know if this is one of those examples, but uh, it really just, it, it, that, that whole ending is firing on all cylinders. I, I completely agree, but I will just say this. Um, Aaron Sorkin is the dad rock of dad rock of writers. Sure. Like he's just like, of course to him, dire straits. And it's a great needle drop. It totally works, right? But it's also just like, yeah, I'm sure he has a dire straits playlist. Like I'm sure he's yeah. got like dad rock no, XM. No one's, accusing this, no one's accusing the West Wing of being uh, cool. hip. Yeah. yeah. Um, not, so uh, I just, yeah, class. please, go ahead. No, uh, one last question um, before I let you go, and it's it's really just more about you know um, how you see the future of this show. Like I, I think that we we saw this uh, really beautiful um, rendition of uh, Hartfield's Landing uh, to try to get people out to vote uh, last year for the election. Beautifully shot in black and white by Tommy Shlomi and and brought the whole cast back together again. They all look great. Um, it 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 did make me kind of sort of maybe hope for some kind of a thing mm-hmm. i don't know about you i would love to i would love to see aaron sorkin kind of ended on his own terms a little bit with his words rather than happening to shoot studio 60 on the warner brothers lot. So we got to sit in the you know in the stands of the finale for reasons that are still weird to me like i just would love to see some kind of an ellipse do you have those feelings? Do you think the show resolved itself in a way that you're fine with it just not seeing? Yeah, it? I, we talked about this off mic. Like, I think obviously the first four seasons are fantastic. It, it you know takes a minute to find itself after Sorkin leaves, but I thought the last couple seasons were great. You know, as sort of like a cousin to the first show. Yeah, I loved the way the show ended. I think um, you know uh, those last seasons are really fantastic. I, I just don't know. The way you do it is either you bring the original cast back and it doesn't feel like it makes sense because these people are in their like yeah. 60s and 70s as White House staffers, which doesn't really work. Or you do the new, say by the bell, the new class version of it with like some screech who's sticking around. And like, um, yeah. I think that would just be a different show. And I don't think, I think Sorkin has aspirations to do, you know, new worlds and, you know, between mm-hmm. Social Network and Molly's Game and uh, Chicago 7. Like, I think he's just like, I, I don't know why he would want to go back and do the reboot version. And I don't know why he would go back and want to do season eight. I just don't see what's in it for him. Um, for can, her, I pitch you know? you, can I pitch you my, my pitch? Yeah, for uh, sure. And, and again, like, I mean, whatever. I, I would I would absolutely watch a two-part thing, two episodes, kind of a movie split in two. Charlie's running for Senate and they're trying to help him with a Senate run or something along those lines. And it's more about bringing those people into the orbit of his campaign in some form or another, um, or somebody else, whatever it is. I guess my, my point is, um, I don't necessarily need to see um, an extension of the Bartlett administration necessarily. I guess it just, I like how the show ends. If we don't get more of it, I'm really fine with it. I'm not sitting here banging a drum saying we desperately need it because we don't. You know what I mean? I, I'm not a Gilmore Girls fan. I know that people liked and didn't like the thing that that uh, that Amy Schumann-Palladino did for, for Netflix a few years ago. Um, but they also didn't like how the show ended when she wasn't there. So it is what it is. I think that sometimes, I think the West Wing's ending is better than the end of Gilmore Girls. So perhaps we can be fine with it being what it is. Um, but I think that there's a version where we could kind of twist ourselves into pretzels a little bit to give ourselves a little bit of an extension or an epilogue, if you will, to what we got. But that's, you know, I won't lose sleep if we don't get it. And I think you're right that it ended on a, on a completely satisfying note. So, yeah. Um, 
Thank you for doing this, Alex. Thank of course. You Thank you for having me. I can't wait to listen to the episodes. It's uh, it's a delight <laughs> to hear uh, when I when you do the 99 and 89 episodes about movies that I am like incredibly fond of. I'm particularly fond of listening to those episodes. So I will listen to the podcast with uh, Thank you. open ears. Well, thank you so much. And and obviously, I hope to have you back in the future. Still a whole bunch of television shows I need to cover. So I would sure. love for you to come back. Great. Thank you again. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, man. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. It's 1999. Podcast like it. You want a podcast like it. 1999. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.